Okay, I'm going to start on time um, because I, I'd love to end enough, early enough that you could make comments or observations or whatever, so I'm going to work on that. Um, thank you. Uh, you've heard, you've all read my bio, I'm sure, so I don't need to come in, uh, introduce myself. Okay. Um, but just nice, glad to be here. I love the Bible lectures and um, just makes, I miss my sister. Usually Emily and I co-teach, but she's teaching this morning at Community Bible Study in Texas, so she couldn't miss today. But she will be here for this next, this weekend, and Gwen Moore, my special dearest friend, is here from Nashville, and uh, we're here for the 50th reunion of the Malibu campus, which is this weekend, so a lot of people are going to be flying in for that, Emily's coming to that, and it's Steve, so that'll be fun. But thank you for coming, there's so many good classes, it's so hard to choose, so I appreciate your choosing mine. I hope, I hope you'll find it um, helpful. And I hope you'll, it'll uh, just help you to think about your life and the people that have impacted your life and what you would like to emulate in, in, from them. Um, I think you can tell from the title, The House That Built Me, uh, by Miranda La Lambert, that I love country music. I don't know how I in, ended up liking country music because my dad, I mean, was very much more sophisticated. They, didn't, they never played country music even though my mom was from Oklahoma City and my dad was from Nashville. Um, they, he blared opera through the house constantly, <laughs> very loudly, all the time. So, and he went to the opera when he was in New York and also he was very, you know, didn't appreciate country or pop music at all. But anyway, maybe I, I strayed because of that. But I like it because it tells stories and it kind of, different songs really are nostalgic for me and bring up a lot of sense of, of sentimentality, so I like country music for that reason. So I chose The House That Built Me because I really like uh, the lyrics. I'm going to read you a few of the lyrics. And if you don't know, it's the story of um, Miranda Lambert going back to her hometown and finding the house she grew up in and uh, knocking on the door, and of course someone else is, the, the woman who lives there opens it and she asks to come in and walk around. And we've actually done that in Lubbock with our, the house that we grew up in. So um, it, I could just relate to that. So I'll read you a little of, of the lyrics that touch me. I know they say you can't go home again. I just had to come back one last time. Ma'am, I know you don't know me from Adam. But these handprints on the front steps are mine. Up those stairs in that little back room is where I did my homework and I learned to play guitar. And I bet you didn't know under that live oak my favorite dog is buried in the yard. I thought if I could touch this place or feel it, this brokenness inside me might start healing. Out there, out, out here, it's like I'm someone else. I thought that maybe I could find myself. If I could just come in, I swear I'll leave. I won't take nothing but a memory from the house that built me. Mama cut out pictures of houses for years from Better Homes and Garden magazine. Plans were drawn and concrete poured, nail by nail and board by board. Daddy gave life to Mama's dream. I thought if I could touch this place or feel it, this brokenness inside me might start healing. Out here, it's like I'm someone else. I thought that maybe I could find myself. 
If I could just come in, I swear I'll leave. I won't take nothing but a memory from the house that built me. You leave home, you move on, and you do the best you can. I got lost in this whole, whole world and forgot who I am. But I thought if I could touch this place or feel it, this brokenness inside me might start healing. Out here, it's like I'm someone else. I thought that maybe I could find myself if I could walk around. I swear I'll leave. Won't take nothing but a memory from the house that built me. I think that's so beautiful. This is the house that built me. Um, I grew up here. This is the president's home on the Los Angeles campus. Uh, Sam and my wonderful husband Sam's here to listen to me and and Gwen know it well. We kind of grew up there too, together. But I lived here from the age of three till the age of 17 uh, in the president's home at the Los Angeles campus. It was a beautiful old rancher's home. George Pepperdine bought the 200 acres, no, like, more like 37 acres, I think, from this rancher and built Pepperdine College. Uh, but I think about the house that built me and the people that built me. I was loved in this house, I was valued, I was taught, I was disciplined, I had structure, I had routine. Mother worked from home every day. Working remotely was not such a thing in those days, but if it were, mother was working remotely. She, she worked from home. And I just thought it was normal. She had a desk, she had an office, and she had a secretary. We called them secretaries then. She had a full-time secretary. To, uh, it, because she had a big job, and my dad would always tell us kids, your mom has a big, important job. She didn't have a title besides first lady, never made a salary, but she had a significant job. She was working every day on correspondence, on letters, thank you notes, condolence letters, congratulations letters. She was the president of the Pepperdine's PR representative. She had calls to make, speeches and sermons to write, her own and my dad's. It was a big job. Um, she had articles to write for the Power for Today that they had started, the devotional uh, guide for that's still going today. My sister and her daughter are still editing Power for Today. Uh, and the, 21st, the 20th Century Christian then, which was the magazine that my dad and J.P. Sanders started. She began the Associate Women for Pepperdine here, a fundraising organization for scholarships grounded in the Churches of Christ, women of the local, the, the California and the West Coast Churches of Christ, raising money through bake sales and crafts for student scholarships. She hosted a lot of civic luncheons and fundraising dinners, I remember. And I remember laying on, I, we lived upstairs and their bedroom was downstairs, but I remember laying on the bed and watching her at her vanity, putting on her makeup, brushing her hair, getting on a, a really pretty dress to go downtown or to some civic uh, event. And I was always just enamored with how, how beautiful she was. Um, you know, she was always smiling. Gwen remembers, Sam remembers. She was always smiling. She was always concerned about how my day was going, how I was doing, what I was looking forward to. I don't ever remember her being cross or grumpy with us, with my sister, Marilyn, who was 13 months older than me. 
She had a job to do, but somehow she always made me feel like my, my world and my life was more important than anything that she was doing. She was, for me, the Proverbs 31 woman, and she, I've heard her many, many times teach on, the, on Proverbs 31. She taught, uh, I, think, I think my grandmother and my mother were both so well known as teachers. They weren't preachers in the Church of Christ in those days, but teachers, uh, probably the best known, uh, pro most prolific teachers of women in the Church of Christ in their generation. And so I've heard her speak a lot about Proverbs 31 as the epitome of the worthy woman, and I thought she was the worthy woman. The worthy woman who can find she's more precious than jewels, the heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life, and that was certainly true of my mom for my dad. The worthy woman provides for her family. She's a successful businesswoman. She considers a field and buys it. She plants a vineyard. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the times to come. She does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed and her husband also. And he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpassed them all. That was my mom for me. My mother taught me to work hard, to not complain, to be industrious. She taught me about hospitality. Everyone is welcome. The house did not have to be perfect. The food could be very basic. In fact, usually it was pulled out of the freezer and defrosted, no microwaves then, or leftovers were heated up on the stove for company. She had to be prepared for anybody that my dad would bring home to lunch or dinner or after church. You know, they would invite people. Uh, and I'll never forget coming into the house they lived on in here, um, an entire band of robed uh, holy men were there. I, and my mother was scrambling to make lunch, and it was the holy men of the Hindu temple. And my dad had somehow met them and invited them all to lunch. And I was just like, what is happening? <laughs> but my dad was just such, so big-hearted, and my mom had just rolled with, rolled with it and didn't get mad. So we, I, she taught me that. She taught me not to stress over details. She taught me what really mattered in life is loving people. Although hospitality, through hospitality sacrificial acts of service, through the church, although she always looked put together, well-dressed and beautiful to me, I never heard her fret about growing older, uh, her hair, her clothes. That was never her focus. Her focus was on a job to be done, working for God's kingdom, working for a higher calling, educating young people at Pepperdine in a Christian environment, equipping the next generation, modeling for them a life lived that is pleasing to God. Mother gave me lift, and I just read a book called, I'm reading a book that Sam brought home from World Vision called The Gift of Lift, and it just reminded me of this, the house that built me, because the theory, of course, is from the Wright brothers, and that a plane, in order to fly, requires for the force of air beneath the wings to provide that upward force to get it going. He quotes, this is David York in this book, 
Like planes in a physical world, life is also a mysterious yet powerful metaphysical force in the lives of men and women who themselves combine a steadfast forward momentum with an eye bent on the horizon. It re reminds us of that song, When Beneath My Wings. It's about the power of perspective on your life. The author expands the biblical view that we are each stewards of the life we've been given, and we, we know that. He says, we are not defined by our titles, our wealth, or accomplishments, but are fully invested in a higher calling. We don't trade in money, fame, power, or prestige. Instead, we invest fully in purpose, passion, and above all, people. He stayed, and that's what my mother, that's a life perspective I realized reading that book my mother gave me. He quotes, the greatest gift you can give a child, a grandchild, an employee, or a community member is to help them foster their own sense of purpose. My mother gave me that lift. She modeled a, a full life investing her time, her talents, and every ounce of energy in something bigger than herself. She modeled following God's call on her life with passion, perseverance, and hard sacrificial work. And the, re the river that ran through all of that for her in her life was her love for her Savior. You know, she, um, she loved that quote by Casey Moser. Um, and I think it was, they, they said it at many funerals, but one was at her mother's funeral. Casey Moser said, Irene knew she was a sinner, but she knew she had a Savior. And that was, that was the heartbeat of their lives. So I want to tell you a little, well, okay, I think I've forgotten to show you pictures, if this works, let's see. Okay, so that's, this is my mom when she was at Pepperdine College as a junior coming from Harding in 1938, and this is my dad at 25 that same year teaching history. He was like 25 years old. Um, and then this is that first year of, of their being, his being president, her first lady, and uh, uh, that's me on, on his lap. And then this is a few years later, but in front of that house, um, that was our presidential, uh, probably a Christmas card or something. But um, boy, there's a lot of stories in that picture. <laughs> we could go on for hours. Uh, and what's happened to everybody, but, uh, but anyway, that was good. Okay, I want to go to this one. This is her mother, Irene. Irene. And Irene, it was interesting, her mother was the daughter of Fount Livingston Young. So she was a young, her maiden name was Young. Her mother's maiden name was Young. And she married a, a man named Judge Maddox. So it was Irene Maddox. But her mother was pretty amazing. She was the oldest of 13 children. Yeah, and they were poor. So Irene really, uh, helped to raise, as you know, with, we still we have friends that have 12 kids. The oldest raise, really raised the, the younger ones, and she did that. Um, the dad, I want to go back to show you her parents. This is, this is my great-grandfather, Fount Livingston Young and Maddie Higgins Young. So those are my great-great-grandparents. Um, 
but that was my grandmother's mother. And um, he found Livingston Young, was college educated, he studied law, he considered going into law or business, but he felt the call of God after going to different um, Church of Christ gospel meetings that he needed to preach. So he became a traveling evangelist across the country for the Churches of Christ. His first meeting was in Nashville, Tennessee in 1898. And there, I didn't realize this until I studied the book, which I recommend. It's a good read, the story of my parents, <laughs> forever young, about you know, their life. But it's so fun, wonderful to have that. But um, he met and was influenced by older church leaders, which were James Harding, Harding College, and David Lipscomb, who started the, the Nashville Bible College, which became Lipscomb. So my great-grandfather was influenced by those men. Um, it, it's, it's remembered that he was a great preacher, but he, he was un, unlike the fire and brimstone preachers of the day. He was more uh, emphasizing love and grace, which doesn't surprise me knowing my mother. Uh, he hated the divisions in the churches and he didn't like sectarianism. He had a profound impact on his granddaughter, uh, Irene, no, my mother, his granddaughter. Um, when she was 11, she went to live with him for the summer in, in Dallas, and by then, Maddie had passed away, and he was uh, ailing and aging, and his, his sister was helping to take care of him. But Mother recalled hearing him preach during that summer, when she was 11, sitting in a chair because he was too weak to stand, um, and just listening to him uh, quote long passages of scripture. He loved memorizing scripture. And um, so that, that had an impact on him. Uh, in my grandmother's childhood, I wondered what I'm looking, that was, okay. I'm gonna go back here because I wanna talk about her childhood a little bit before she has all of her children. Um, looking back, um, it's, it, it's, he, she was the oldest of 13, and believed in higher education. And what's interesting is that of the 13 children, she had, let me see, how many, I have this somewhere, 13 children, seven sons and six daughters. And, and um, um, but they believed in higher education. And I think Jerry, um, Mike Koch yesterday was talking about the, our, our restoration heritage and how we've always emphasized higher education. And that's why Church of Christ have so many Christian colleges. So of those uh, 13 children, they went to Harvard, University of Chicago, and other fine schools, and two became medical doctors, two were lawyers, several were teachers, and others were in business. So kind of an amazing family uh, that came. Irene was bright, outgoing, and very self-confident, as many oldest children are. She was, had her father's intellect, moral strength, and leadership quality. She seemed to have inherited his speaking ability as well. Irene was not frightened or intimidated by people of rank or wealth. Her father, by his example, gave her and all the children confidence. You are a child of the king, he used to tell Irene. And it reminds me a lot of my sister Marilyn, who's uh, passed away, but um, she had that fiery personality too, and a lot of confidence. She was sure she was right about everything. <laughs> um, what is that quote about it must be hard to be 
to know you're right and, and somebody and they respond. It, it's terrible. Yeah. yeah. Um, in 1904, uh, Irene married this handsome young man named Judge, and he was 35 and she was 23. And he was quiet. He was, as we would call it today, an introvert. Um, he built homes and he built a lot of church buildings in Oklahoma City. I liked hearing, reading one of the excerpts of my grandmother's letters to her sister. She said, it occurs to me that I've said little about my good husband who is, good, who is as good as can be. He is a persistent Bible reader, seldom reads anything else, and two Sundays a month ministers to near, two nearby small congregations. It used to distress me immeasurably because he had no desire to be known by men. Quite to the contrary are his pleasures. That's that frustrated her. She, he was so humble and quiet. And I think uh, we read a lot of her correspondence and she's begging him to write her. <laughs> you know, he, she just wants more. Um, he, he struggled with his health most of his life. But he also had a real impact on my mother. She remembers being as being, you know, the two youngest. They had seven children. I'll show you that picture now. So this is Irene, my grandmother, with her seven children. And uh, let's see, this is Catherine. And no, I think that's Catherine, and this is my mom. And then that's the youngest. So my mother, Helen, and Frank were the two youngest of the seven. That's Irene. Um, Judge loved scripture too, just like his father-in-law, and he memorized long passages of scriptures. We've really lost that, haven't we? Um, but she, my mom would recall that he would offer her and Frank, the youngest, if they memorized the whole psalms, they would get five cents. And so they would memorize psalm after psalm. And I can remember as a child, my mother quoting not only the Psalms, but Isaiah 55 and Isaiah 53. They probably got more money if they <laughs> memorized longer passages. But she had all those in her memory. It was just such a beautiful thing. Um, as a young couple in the 1900s, jobs were hard to come by. And uh, she, as you can see, she had seven children. She started by teaching making $170 a month. And what was interesting to me was she actually paid for childcare in those days. Because she had like five in school, but she had the two little ones. So she paid a dollar a day for somebody to come in and clean and cook and take care of mother and Frank and, uh, and, until the kids got out of school. So that was interesting to read too. But she was an amazing, amazingly active uh, leader, female leader. She was active in um, politics. She actually helped to manage the campaign of an army general running for the governor of Oklahoma. She was active in women's culture clubs, the Parent Teachers Association she launched there, uh, the Women's Christian Temperance Union she was a member, <laughs> and also she marched for women's suffrage. She was a suffragette. So that's pretty cool. I loved reading that. Uh, but, of course, she was always very active in her Church of Christ congregation, and, let, and I've heard her a thousand times um, teach ladies' Bible class and teach uh, women in, in our church uh, Bible lectures, I mean, our school Bible lectures. So she was quite the teacher. Um, she also, this was interesting, she also began the social welfare efforts in Oklahoma City during the Great Depression. 
eventually being named the director of Oklahoma County Social Service Department. How she had time to do all that. But, uh, but Mother, I remember her telling us that she remembers as a child in the car, I think they had a station wagon in Oklahoma City, going from restaurant to grocery store to bakery, picking up their day-old food or anything they wanted to donate. And they would take them, Mother and Irene, grandmother, would take them under the bridge to homeless encampments all through Oklahoma City. And, uh, and Mother, you know, was kind of horrified by just realizing they're actually people poor, much poorer than they were, and they thought they were poor. But she remembers the little kids running around the car saying, Mrs. Maddox is here, Mrs. Maddox is here, mm -hmm. excited for what they would, were going to bring the family to eat. So that's just amazing. Um, but I wanted, there's my mother uh, in Lubbock, soon after she got married, I love the hat. <laughs> Lubbock, Texas, she was the pastor's wife. <coughs> there they are as a young couple. And then, now this is my grandmother in, in, in her, let's see, this is 1964, and she was receiving an uh, Irene, Irene Young Maddox at the Bible Teachers Lectureship. You know, she was receiving an award for uh, leading women uh, in Bible studies. And then that's me and my mom in her latter, latter years. But I wanted to tell you that both women faced a lot of trials, as you can imagine. I've, I've mentioned some. Poverty is one. Um, and then an ailing husband for Irene. Um, and, and just having seven, seven kids and living on a shoestring. Yeah, but it's amazing what they did uh, with the little they had. And she, my grandmother had very strong, rebellious children. And now, at my age, I kind of reflect on the heartache she must have had because only one of her four boys really followed Christ. And that had to be heartbreaking. And two of her three daughters followed Christ, Catherine and my mom. Um, but others, as far as we know, never came back to the Lord. And that had to be a heartbreak for her. My mother, as you know, because most of you know, knew about my mother, uh, in her 99 years, had a lot of joy, but she had a lot of sorrow. Um, she sacrificed a lot to be a leader at, at, in Christian education at Pepperdine. The disappointments they faced, I remember, when they were attacked and accused falsely by brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, and they were viciously attacked verbally and through letters those days, thank goodness there wasn't social media, but just by, by faculty and staff at Pepperdine. Once, you know, an experience they never, never had at Broadway Church of Christ, um, but really faced it a difficult time at, at Pepperdine. Um, the constant pressure of raising funds to build the, the campus on, at Malibu um, and just that the challenges that come with leadership as a couple. So we really need to pray for our leaders. I have such a heart for that. And then, of course, my dad's struggle with alcoholism that brought great humiliation to her and the whole family. Um, and the heartache of my brother walking away from the Lord soon after he graduated from Pepperdine and went to med school. And... Uh, I'm, I'm thankful he seems to be kind of coming back in his 70s now, so it's a, I feel like it's an answer to my mom's prayers, but, you know, her lifetime, he 
was not walking with the Lord at all. Uh, and then, of course, my sister Marilyn, who we love dearly, passed away at the age of 49 of leukemia. But she had terrible mental health issues, we call them today, depression, uh, self-harm, um, self-sabotage, and eventually alcoholism for her as well. And, uh, and then her early death of leukemia, just the heartbreak of a mother uh, with that. But there again, Marilyn also had a wonderful decade of coming back to the Lord and, and having a child and, and a wonderful family. But I learned from watching them how to respond and how to react to life's difficulties. They, they, they clung to scripture that they had learned on their father's knee. They drew strength from attending church and singing the hymns. I just, whenever I'm in church, especially where, when we're doing this one united uh, a cappella singing, I just think about my mom. Loved those hymns, knew every word and just standing by her and looking up at her, you know, in churches, uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and their, their sense of responsibility that we're here, it's not for us, we're here to serve, we're here as an example to others, uh, we're loyal to the church, and what an inspiration that is to me. She knew deep in her soul the faithfulness and goodness of God. And uh, I like, I really do like Ann Voskamp, and I, I really, you have to read it slowly, but it's rich, her book, The Waymaker. Uh, and she starts by talking about um, how excruciatingly, excruciatingly disappointing her honeymoon was, and, and what a huge disappointment it was, and how they ended up going home early, and it was just awful, and... Uh, so but she kind of sets us up with that and just saying that we expect a lot of life and we often blame God when it doesn't happen the way we prayed it would. And so she says you can't control the way the wind blows, you can't control the way the currents run, as you can't control the way of the waves. There is a tender mystery in God's ways. Lovers fail to love. People disappoint. Plans implode, bodies struggle, expectations go awry, pain is all-encompassing, and none of us is immune. But she also says, we can't waste our days waiting until things are painless to finally be joyful. You have to find a way to believe love lives at peace with pain, and the two will never divorce, because to love is to be tender enough to know suffering to be vulnerable enough to know hurt. And the only way to divorce your way from any pain is to divorce yourself from any love. The way to love always knows roads of pain. And if we all know that from our life experience. She also emphasizes, and I like it so much, the last two nights we've gone, I've gone to the... Um, evening lecture, they both brought up that, I think it's Hebrew, the Hebrew term hesed, remember? Hesed, that attachment love, that, that loving kindness of God, and she talks about it a lot. And I love the way she does it, that she talks about how hesed is a forever covenant, always unconditional, unwavering, loyal, the loyal kind of love of inseparable binding. It's attachment love that God has for us. And it's hard for us to 
conceive, but she says that's where we run, that knowledge is where we run to when we feel alone. She concludes by saying, expectation grows suffering. When you let go of our expectation, must suffer, much suffering will let go of us. She says, expect nothing in life but has said, the attachment love of God. Expect God to knock on your door. Expect God to rise on your horizon. Expect hope and mercy and miracles. But just don't expect God to come looking any way you expect. So it's kind of getting God out of the box, your box, of what you expect him to do for you. Expect nothing but hasad, the loving kindness of God, not just in kind ways, not in the kind of ways you've ever dreamed of. And I think we can see that in our lives looking back, the faithfulness of God. <coughs> showing up in ways we never expected or even prayed for, but he surprises us with his faithfulness and his goodness. And then finally, I like how she talks about the art of the turn, and I see this in both my grandmother and my mother. She says, it doesn't matter how your road turns, but it matters who you turn to and who you attach to. Presence heals pain, Witness binds up wounds. Bonding eases trauma. Life is the art of the turn. My mother and grandmother modeled turning to God in times of trial. They turned to God in faith, not bitterness. They were faithful to the end. They believed and held on to Hassad, the attachment love of God. I want to end, what time is it? Okay, I have five minutes. I want to end with just a kind of a call to action that I have felt. Um, I have really learned the power of women friendship. And, and a lot of it has been through this Women in Leadership Institute that I started at Pepperdine. Um, and I learned it at a conference on women in leadership that the, the um, Council for Christian Colleges and Universities put on up in, in Washington State one year. And just the power of female friendships for us is so, so important. And I, I really honestly didn't see that modeled in my mother. Um, I don't think she had good attachments to other women that would have supported her. But I'm finding it in my life to be so wonderful. Um, I like this book too, The, D, the Friendships of Women by Dee Breston. And she cites Dale Levinson of Yale, who indicates that difficult times in life, such as midlife or loss of a mate, are more successfully <coughs> negotiated by those who have a strong same-sex friendship. That's why women seem to cope better than men with the loss of a spouse. And Dr. Beth Hess says, there is a strong hypothesis that friends help women survive. Part of a woman's ability to sustain themselves in older years depends on their capacity for constructing a network of friends. I think that's so true. And I, one example she gives is Madeline Lay and her uh, friendship with her editor, Lucy Shaw. And it's, that's a beautiful story in that book, too. But I'm just, uh, in, in my Our Women in Leadership Institute, it's not so much what we've discovered after doing it for, I think this is our fifth year, and it's a mentor-mentee program, but it's not so much 
that every woman aspires to be the dean or they all want to be the president or they can't wait to be the vice president. It's really just the power of a woman coming alongside you, an older woman, and, and just being your friend and saying, I see you, these are the gifts I see in you, and um, I want to encourage you to develop this or pursue this or tell me what you're interested in or what do you like most about your job and, and uh, or where, where do you need to go next? You know, just that support is so, so important uh, for, for us to feel seen. One of the things I like is this book, if I can find my notes because I think it's a good, oh yeah, it's called The Blind Spot, The Global Rise of Unhappiness and How Leaders Missed It by John Clifton, who's the head of Gallup, CEO of Gallup Polls, you know, they have the world poll. But one of the most interesting things when I heard him speak here at Pepperdine was he talked about a world survey of people finding fulfillment in, in their work. And one of the most important aspects of feeling attached to your work and enjoying your work is friendship. You have one good friend at work. And isn't that interesting that that is so critical? Because we need to feel connected and we need to feel seen and valued and heard and validated. And uh, that's just very critical. So I want to encourage you to pursue, pursue your friendships. And I'll end with this illustration, which I learned, uh, my sister Emily told me. But it's the, it's the story of the Redwoods and how many of you have been to the Redwood Forest, the amazing redwoods that are so tall and so glorious and so wonderful. And she said there was a national park a ranger that explained that even though the redwoods are so tall and majestic, their root system is really very shallow. But the way that they withstand the storms and the winds and stand firm, even with their amazing height, is that those roots intertwine with each other, not each other, and hold each, hold each other up during the storms. What a great picture of, of what we need in life. We've got to intertwine our roots with others, and that's why I'm so thankful for my grandmother and my mother. Those are roots that are holding me up in the storms of life, and we can be the roots that hold up younger women in our life. And uh, so I want to just, no matter how old you are, I want you to have that perspective that, that we can help each other stand firm in our faith, in our sense of self, in our sense of purpose, in our joy, by just being each other's confidant and friend. So I want to encourage you in that. Um, okay, what, okay, 940. We really have like four minutes. So <laughs> anybody want to make a comment or a reflection? Sharon. I just like your input, you know, at the Boone Center we work with a lot of pastors and pastors' families and, and women in church leadership often feel like they can't have friends yeah. in their environment, mm -hmm. which I think is a sad yeah. perspective. I, so I'm interested, I mean, do you go on and risk it anyway? I mean, what would your yeah. thought be? Because you're talking about women, well, your mom, yeah, huge position of leadership, uh -huh. and you yourself, huge position of leadership. There's a risk to friendship, yeah. but it's true. What is your thought on that? Yeah, I I think that's so true, and I'm sure that's a lot of reason why my mother didn't have female friendships. 
Although she was close to her sister, and of course I'm very close to my sister, and that's been a great blessing. I talk to her almost every morning on the phone, but I can tell her anything, and she's, she serves me so well that way. But I really risk, and I, you just, it, it is a decision on who you can trust. But now I would say I have three friends at Pepperdine that they can come to my office and we pray. We are complete, completely honest with each other. We are really supporting each other here. And it's been the, I've known them for 15 years here at Pepperdine. So my trust, I mean, I, I trust them. And I've never been betrayed by them. So, um, you know, it's a risk. But I think it's worth it because I just love seeing them. And we can text each other. And we can just walk to the cafeteria and have lunch and talk about our kids. They can come to my office and we pray. and. It's just a rich thing. I'm so thankful for it. It's really given me a lot of comfort. Good question. You do have to be careful. Any other reflections or thoughts? Does it bring up anything from your childhood that you think about? Anybody? So rich. I, I bear witness to everything you said. I was there. So. Yes, you were. It's all true. You were the one, that, one of the kids that mother loved. Yeah. Loved well. Yeah, and her mom. Her mom, in her old age, used to write letters to young preachers telling them what they should be reading. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I remember uh, on the Los Angeles campus, that house, sitting in the kitchen, and my mom, my, my grandmother and my dad, you know, I realized that he respected her as much as any man, male, male leader in the church, because they were talking church politics and church theology and what we should do as the church, you know. So that was that's a neat memory. Yeah. How would you tell um, women in their twenties today how to apply Proverbs thirty-one? <laughs> yeah. You know, in social media and everything. Oh, I know. Or in their forties. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't, in some ways, I don't think things have changed that much. I mean, I know they have, and we have to really, but I, in social media, I think we just really have to guard our minds and our thoughts and our heart, because it's so uh, devastating to our sense of self and the value of our life and all that, but compared to others. So I think we have to be be cautious of that to and really to but I think in, in in the end it's just you know our 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 faithfulness to God if we're married our faithfulness to our spouse and if we have children our you know putting them first whatever that means is so important so I, in some ways those basics of the family don't change and being committed to his kingdom and how, how can we serve and how can we help be a light to lead others to Christ at our stage of life? And, you know, those things are basic and never change. And that's what Mother taught women all over the country. It's how to be a good wife and mother. And it may look a little different now, you know. She might have been strong about staying home with your young kids. I don't know. But um, she never laid any kind of guilt on me. Um, there was, so, there's, a, yeah. there's a quote from her um, during a very difficult time. We weren't married at the time. Sarah and I weren't. But I knew Helen very well, and she had actually befriended me when I was a poor student at Pepperdine and gave me a $500 check just to stay at school, which is not the story. 
But she was in a very difficult trial, and it was had gone on for four or five difficult days. And she, someone said, you need to go down and pick her up. She's down in Santa Monica and take her to church at Malibu. Mm -hmm. So got the car, came and picked her up, and I and I said, how are you doing in all this? And she said, well, I'm very, very strong. Mm -hmm. And I'm stronger than they are, mm -hmm. the people that were in trouble. Mm -hmm. Not the people who were big tough, but the people that were in trouble. She said, I'm able to do that, but I need to go to church. Mm -hmm. You know, it was practical for her that she would see other people at church. She would open her Bible and read her Bible, and then she would mark. Mm -hmm. You would see her discipline about, I've got to read that. She mm -hmm. would read the text, and then she would try to apply it. She, she was pretty basic yeah, in very. that way. I don't think she was interested in giving you a lot of frivolity. Mm -hmm. If you were to think about marrying somebody, she would come straight to the point if there was a problem. I know somebody who came to her said, I'm thinking about marrying somebody, and she said, well, you know, that would be a very difficult marriage. marriage Just Having faith in common was yeah, she, absolutely she, critical. Yeah, she really was a, a leader in that sense, she was able to lead with wisdom. Mm -hmm. So she had good judgment to go with that. She and she was obviously smart, and she had a lot of energy, not as much probably as your grandmother, but she had a lot of energy. She did. Amazing woman. Yeah, bless, that's the house that built me, so I'm very, very thankful. I'm, and I, I'm, you know, I know a lot of women have a lot of pain in their background, and abuse, and, trauma, you know, that has to be healed, so that I'm fortunate I don't have that, I, I realize that, I'm very, very blessed, but uh, life brings cha other challenges, whatever you've gone through, like Ann Voskamp says, you don't get out of it without pain, <laughs> so let's pray, I'll pray for you all, thank you Lord for each woman and man here, I'm grateful for their lives, that they wanted to be here, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will minister to each one the truths that were spoken today and remind them and help us all, Lord, to be clear about what our, our calling is, our mission is in this life, um, and help us to be the strong roots for other younger people that are coming behind us, Lord, to be an example, to be a model, to be an encourager, uh, to be a support to help them in their walk, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.